This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to Philippians 1. I'm not going to actually preach a message on uh, fatherhood or for Father's Day. Uh, I'm just going to continue on in our study of Philippians. But I think that this passage uh, will have some real applications for fathers. And I'll try to draw some connections there, but if I don't make all the connections, you could be listening with that in mind. Um, Because this is really the Apostle Paul fathering the church in Philippi, uh, showing a real father's heart in what he communicates. And so we do celebrate and honor our fathers today and uh, love you guys. We have so many great examples of godly men and fathers in our church, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm really grateful to be a part of a fellowship where you don't have to look far at all to find a compelling example of a man who uh, lives dependent on the Lord as a father. And I also realize that this is a very difficult day for some. I know a few people, this is the first year they've celebrated Father's Day since their dad died. Um, and so that's a, today could be a grieving day for some people, or for some people, maybe they didn't grow up with a father, or maybe they grew up, maybe you grew up with a father who was distant or negligent or worse, even abusive. And uh, so a day like today could be a, a day that, that brings up, you know, raw memories sometimes. So we, we celebrate and honor our dads uh, in, the, in, in the midst, but we also recognize and we're compassionate and want to care for those for whom, and be aware, primarily I make this comment, just so that we be aware, so that if you have an intact relationship with your dad, and you are a Christian dad, that, uh, that you celebrate and your family celebrates absolutely, no holds barred. But at the same time, we are a family, and we recognize that some in our family, this could be a difficult day, so we want to be compassionate and caring and encouraging for those who, who struggle understandably on a day like today with grief, uh, maybe grieving death or even um, challenging memories on a day like today. So at any rate, uh, happy Father's Day, and we're going to look at the next section of Philippians. We're studying Philippians this summer. This would be a good time to invite someone to church, because this is going to be a good Bible study all summer where we could introduce someone to a book of the Bible, and often we don't cover books in a compact, compact season like this. So this will be a compact season to cover a book of the Bible. Well, before we jump into this passage of Philippians, I want to ask you a, a question this morning. Here's the question. So how do you like your church? If you're from another church and you're a guest here today, uh, then think about your church, not this one, obviously, but think about your home church. So how do you like your church? What, what, what is your attitude towards your church? What do you think about your church? What do you, I'll use this word because it's a biblical word we're going to see today. What do you feel about your church? I, I, uh, my experience tells me that there is a wide range of ways to answer this question. On one side of the spectrum is people who hate their church. I, I enter, encounter people sometimes who uh, hate their church, just complain, uh, everything's wrong, nothing's right about their church experience, and uh, does sometimes raise a question, then why are you a part of that church? But there are, there are people who just hate their church. Maybe, maybe you're a young person, your parent forces you to come to church, something like that, you don't like it. Other people just don't like their church. And on the other end of the spectrum are people who view their church in such a way that their church could do no wrong. 
that they are in the church that believes the Bible more than anyone else, and their practices are the most biblical, and their church is really, I mean, they may not say this, but really is better than every other church. And that can ease into sort of church idolatry. And you hear them talk about their church, and it's not complaining, but it's waxing so complimentary that you wonder, do you love your church or Jesus more? You know, which, which is it? So there could be church hatred on one end. There could be church idolatry on the other end. And most everybody falls somewhere in between that spectrum. So how do you feel about your church? Do you like your church? I think here's a more important question than do you like your church and how do you feel about your church that we're going to see in the text today. How does Jesus feel about your church? What does Christ think? about your church. And the church, after all, is people, right? It's people. So what does Christ think about the people in your church? And how does Christ's view of the church affect our view of the church? How does Christ's heart for his people affect our heart for his people? How does Christ feel about all the people in our church? In the passage we're going to read today, we see Paul's strong relationship with the Philippian church and and by implication, their relationship with him. And he is out there and tells us exactly how he feels about this church. He tells us exactly what he thinks about this church. And here's the point I want to make about this today is that he does it and he ties it to Christ's heart for the church and he ties it for the gospel. So it's not just that these are great people and if you knew the Philippians, you'd love them too. But if you knew the people in my church, Paul wouldn't be saying the same. No, no, it's not just situational. He ties it to the Lord's heart and so there's a universal application here and he ties ties it to the gospel, so there's a universal application for us today. Paul's deep love for the Philippians, for these people, and his great hope for them is expressed in two ways, thankfulness for the church and prayer for the church. And what this passage is going to show us is that the gospel, the gospel, the work of Jesus in the heart of Christ, the gospel drives us to thank God for his church and to pray for her growth, to thank God for his church, and to pray that she would grow, particularly in the love of God. So let's read verses 3 through 11 of Philippians 1, and just note Paul's heart for the people of God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, 
And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Lord, we confess today that we don't always have your view about many things, and we often don't have your view about other Christians. And I pray today, Lord, that you would reveal your heart to us. Lord, this is our prayer. Father, would you show us your heart for your children? Jesus, would you show us your heart for those for whom you died? Spirit, would you stir our heart with the affection of Christ? And God, would you you help us that our heartbeat would beat with gratitude for what you've done in your people and hope for what you will do in your people? We just pray for that today. And Lord, I just confess that I don't walk in love so much of the time. And I I just pray that you'd turn my heart, you'd turn all of our hearts, not to just do good things or have good hearts, but Lord, that you would turn us to have your heart, that your love for us, Lord, I pray you would shower us with a revelation of your love for us, that we would extend that love for the others whom you love as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to talk about two things today that Paul reveals in here. This is a dense passage. There's a lot of language. It's eight verses. We could break this down word by word, phrase by phrase, and this could be easily three, if not four, sermons. But I'm just going to take the two big ideas from it and develop them this morning. And that is that Paul is thanking God for the church, and Paul is praying for God to work in the church. So his love for the church is expressed in two ways. He thanks God. For God's people, and he prays for God's people. First of all, thanking God for the church. Now, in all of Paul's letters, he starts off with some kind of statement about thanksgiving for the church. Every letter except Galatians, uh, which is really interesting, uh, because they're about to lose the whole gospel uh, in that church. So, in every one of his church, every one of his letters, he thanks God for the church in some way, but none of them are warmer than this one. This is the most warm, affectionate thanksgiving that he gives. And there's a couple of reasons why he thanks God for the church here. He says, first of all, he thanks them every time he remembers them. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. So here's what happens. Paul's in, in a prison. He's imprisoned. He's in chains. And he's basically telling the the Philippian church, every time I remember you, it's like the floodgates open up in my heart. And I'm joyful. I mean, I'm sitting here, Paul can be thinking all day long. He can't be doing. uh, He could be writing, I suppose. And he was allowed to have guests at this point, visitors. Uh, the end of book, the book of Acts tells us, but but he's not doing a lot. He's he's chained, so he he has plenty of thinking time. And when he thinks of this church, it's like the floodgates open and his heart fills with affection and joy. And he just starts praying for them. And he uses these expansive language. I'm even using big gestures here. Expansive. Look how he says, in all my remembrance, always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making prayer. It's just this big, like an Italian grandma or something. Uh, 
Is, is that racially, is that ethnically wrong to say that? I, I think that's okay, right? I, I mean that in a good way. I'm not just singling out Italians or talk big, but the Italian grandma is like, come on in, you know, just uh, every prayer, every, just this, he's being as expansive as he can. And, he's, and he says that when he thinks of the people of uh, Philippi, he gives thanks for them. Think about it. I love that, that little play on words there, that when he thinks of them, he thanks God for them. When he thinks of the church, he thanks God for the church. When he thinks of the people of God, he thanks God for the people of God. Now, we're going to cover in a moment what he prays, uh, because he also thanks and then he prays. We'll cover that in a moment. That's at the end of the section, verses 9 through 11. But I just want to highlight this joyful prayer whenever he thinks about them. And this is a good application question for us to think at the beginning. When I think of my church, is my first impulse to thank God for my church? And I don't mean the institution. I mean people here. I'm not talking about this building. I'm not talking about some program. Uh, I'm talking about the people. So when I think of the people God has placed me in, whether it's this church or if you're visiting from another church, your home church, when I think of where God has placed me, do I thank God for those people? And he does pray, by the way, because we could all think of someone we really love in the church. Oh, yeah, I love that guy. I love that guy. That's my really friend. But but he doesn't just say that. He says, uh, for all of you. And my prayer of mine, for all of you, making my prayer with joy. He thanks God for all the Philippians. And we already know there's some problems in there. There's a couple ladies that are having a fight. So he thanks God for them as well. Um, There's some bubbling up dissension and division in the church because in chapter two he has to address selfish ambition so there's some selfishly ambitious people yes he thanks god and loves the selfishly ambitious people and it has joy for them as well so when i think about the people i circle in a living room with on wednesday night called my community group can i thank god do i thank god for them when i think about the person i serve in children's ministry with when i think about the other young people in in the youth ministry uh, do I th- when I think of the church, do I thank God? That's Paul's response. Now, why is that his response? Well, number two, he not only thanks them when he remembers them, but he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. Look at verse 5. This gives the reason. Because, I thank my God, because, verse 5, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I don't toss around a lot of Greek words because it's usually not very helpful um, and I don't want to leave the false impression that I'm a Greek scholar because I'm not. But this word is worth noting because it's one that many of us know or it's tossed around in Christian circles sometimes. And it's the word koinonia. Because of your partnership, that's the word koinonia. That word is frequently translated fellowship. As a matter of fact, that word is also sometimes translated communion. So I thank my God for your fellowship in the gospel, for your communion in the gospel. Here's another interesting thing. That word partnership was often used in the first century as a commercial term. So if you started a business, we would say this. We'd use the word partner and not fellowship. But we would say, hey, uh, I'm starting a business. I have a business partner. Uh, In the early Uh, In the first century, they would say, I entered a fellowship, a business fellowship with this guy or this team. We entered a business fellowship. So the word had some commercial overtones. And it's interesting, Paul in chapter 4 is going to say that their partnership is a financial one. That they have given him and provided for his needs. And in, in Romans 15, Paul talks about the fact that he's taking a offering, an offering from the Macedonians... 
and, the, and, and those in Achaia. He's taking an offering to Jerusalem for the poor during a famine, and he says, I'm taking them, he uses the word contribution. It's the same word. It's the word koinonia. I'm taking a fellowship, a partnership, a communion. What does that mean? It means that their partnership showed up in something real and sacrificial. It wasn't just a pat on the back and a nice encouragement. They were making sacrifices to support Paul. Why? Because they had a partnership and a fellowship in the same mission. He says, you're with me when I'm in chains. You're with me in the defense of the gospel. So this partnership had a material, a supportive, and we're all in, in this communion, this tangible partnership of a common gospel mission. That's all true, but it's, there's something much deeper than that. Their partnership is much deeper than a common uh, financial support. Their partnership is much deeper. Listen to this. Their partnership is much deeper than a gospel mission. So we're together in mission. This church was together in mission with Paul and the other churches he was in a partnership with. But there's something much deeper because look what he says in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Wow, that is, that is the heart of it. You are partakers with me of grace. Now, there's a note in the ESV when it says this partakers of grace. And if you look down, if you have the ESV, there'll be a note uh, at the bottom of your page or wherever your Bible gives it. And it says that it can be translated this way. You all have fellowship with me in grace. Okay, so let's back this up. Here's what he's saying. I thank God every time I think about you. Why? Because we are in a fellowship, we have received grace together. I came to your town, I told you about Jesus, and you received that same grace. This is profound and it's vital for church unity, it's vital for affection for one another, that we understand that every believer has a common experience in Christ. What he's saying is, we have all experienced rescue by Jesus, What do we have in common? We were all apart from Jesus. We were all dead in sin. We were all stone cold, dead in our hearts. We were blind and Jesus came and imparted life to us. We were all enemies of God. He made us his friends. We were all apart from God. We've now received, partaken. We've taken his grace together. And this is what we have in common. Paul says, here's, why, here's what joins us together. We've all been forgiven by the same blood of Jesus. And that means that none of us was any better than anyone else in the room. There was no one that needed less of Jesus' blood. There was no one that had a pretty good record, so they brought their record and got a little extra help from Jesus. If it took 100 to be 100% forgiven, they brought 50%. And this guy brought 25% of his works. This guy brought 90. He only needed a 10% addition from Jesus. No, everyone was dead. Everyone was under judgment, and we all received grace. God poured it out on us, and that's why we're joined together. I wasn't better than you. You weren't better than me, and guess what? As we stand before God today, where the ground is level at the foot of the cross, we are all declared saints. That's what he said. You're all saints in Jesus. We are all equally declared righteous before God. 
That doesn't mean that there aren't some who are more mature than others. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that our position before God, our status before God, our acceptance before God is exactly the same because we've all received the same grace. So you can look down the row. You can look around the room on Wednesday night. You can look in the children's ministry. Anyone who is a Christian is on equal footing with you and me because they have received the same grace. We all have the same hope of eternal life. We've all received the same resurrection power. We all have the same Holy Spirit uh, dwelling in us. We're all saints. We're all equally loved by God. There's no one in the church that God loves more, for Jesus shed the same blood for all of us. And so he's saying we share something in common. We've got a fellowship around grace. We've all partaken of the same grace. We're in union with Christ. And that's how I'm to view every other person in the church. I'm to view every every other Christian, period. But he's speaking to a local family, a local church, a body of believers. So I'm to view everyone in my church and say, we have equally received the grace of God. And we're in partnership. We're joined together. I look at you and I say, you're just... You are just as undeserving of the love of God as I am. I didn't deserve his love any more than you. And conversely, you didn't deserve his love any more than I did. It's all grace. And we all got in this thing totally for free. And he saved us all even when we weren't looking for him. And he loves us all equally. That affects how I judge you. That affects how I judge you. I can't look at you and say, hey, I brought something to the party that you didn't bring. And I can't look at you and say, I'm better off with Jesus than you are. He likes me a little bit more. Nor can I judge myself in a low way and say, I'm not included. God loves you more than he loves me. It affects how I view you. It affects how I judge you. I judge you as loved by God. I should. I judge you as treasured by God. Saved by Christ. That's how I'm to judge you. It affects how I view you. It, affa- it should lead me to give thanks for you. Thank you, God, that you saved her and him. Thank you, Lord. And we're in this thing together. See, when we grasp that, here's the result. Look what he says in verse 7. Before he says, you're all partakers with me of grace, before he says, you're all in fellowship with me in grace, what does he say right before that? It's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. That's not Hallmark greeting card sort of sentimentality. I mean, that's gut level. God's acted on all of us and you mean something to me. You matter to me. I'm looking at you through the lens of someone chosen and saved by Jesus Christ. And so you're in my heart, man. That's what he's saying. You are, I hold you in my heart. Look what else he says. He goes on to say, you are partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What he's saying, we're together in suffering. Okay, I am suffering, I'm in prison, and you are with me. We're joined together in Christ. We're forgiven. You're with, you're with me in suffering. And here's the truth. When we stick together, when we value the grace of God in one another during suffering, it ties us together. And you see that right here. It builds affectionate bonds. Paul says, you guys sent me support. You're praying for me. You sent me this guy Epaphroditus to drop off care package for me. 
You did that for me while I'm in prison. By the way, that's a shameful thing in the first century. So it's not like the local church here, and it's not like Philippi said, we're ashamed of Paul. He mentions that. It's not like you said, wow, we're separate from Paul. It's not like we said, well, we got to find someone else. Paul can't do anything for us anymore. He's limited in prison. No, you love me. You supported me. We're partakers together in grace. We're suffering together. And that means our fellowship is strong. And we're serving together. You were with me in confirmation of the gospel. So we're preaching the gospel together. Now, you may not be standing up like Paul is, but we're joined together. We each play our part. The Philippians are being faithful witnesses in their daily work, among their family, in their neighborhood, but they're joined in a ministry with Paul. They've been touched by the same grace that Paul has. So we're in this thing together. And by our suffering, imprisonment, and by our serving and and evangelizing, confirmation of the gospel, it builds affection so that I say, I hold you in my heart. It's a partnership of grace. See, when there's a partnership of grace, we're not just in a club. We're not just among, well, we found the most like-minded people we could and decided just to hang out with them. Everybody's not like-minded. We, we talked last week about how the Philippian church started. It started with a religious businesswoman, a demonized slave girl, and a jailer. I don't think those people are all just hanging out together naturally. Well, here's a natural combination businesswoman, demon girl, and uh, jail guy. I don't think so. Sounds like the start of a bad joke. A demon girl and a jailhouse guy and a businesswoman walk into a bar. No way. These people are not together. But they're joined by grace. And when we get that, look what it produces. Verse 8, the very next verse. You're with me. You're with me in the fellowship of grace. We've partaken of the same Jesus, the same gospel, the same grace. Verse 8, for God is my witness. That's strong. I'm making an oath here. That's what he's saying. God will back me up on this. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Wow. I yearn for you. Paul's not a professional minister. He's not a, 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 just a career missionary executing a job description. He's not some guy fulfilling an obligation. He's passionate about God's people. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ. The word affection there is the word bowels. It means from the gut. It's like from the gut of Christ, what Christ feels for you, that's what I feel for you. That's what motivates my love for you, is his love for you. He has Christ's perspective, and so Christ's people in his heart. This is so clear. What he's saying is, Jesus acted upon you by grace and saved you, and now I look at you with his perspective. He loved you enough to suffer and die and bear the penalty for your sin, to be mocked, to be spat upon, to suffer physically, to suffer the wrath of God. He did all of this for you because he loves you. And now I'm seeing you through his eyes of love. And when I get that going, I'm yearning for you out of my gut with love for you. That's what he's saying. I mean, it's almost embarrassing how he's kind of talking here if you didn't didn't know any different, if you didn't understand theologically what's going on. It sounds like he's just gushing, but he's not. He's making the point, this is how the gospel affects me. This is how the gospel affects my view of you. I see what Jesus did for you. We're fellow recipients of grace, and I love you with his love. See, a real understanding of the gospel and how Jesus loves those he saves, Jesus' love, a real understanding of the gospel will produce a warmth in our heart towards God's people 
because we will see how much Jesus loves his people. That's exactly what he's saying here. Here's the problem. We can assume that God holds our opinion of other people. I'm not too crazy about that person. I'm sure God feels the same way. I'm sure I'm right. right? I don't really like what they do. They're too loose. They're worldly. They're legalistic. They're obnoxious and loud. They're quiet and hard to relate to. They're just odd. I mean, we could just, we could just judge people left and right in the body of Christ. I don't think they like me, so I don't like them. They sinned against me one time. I'll never get over that. So we just sort of assume that God has the same opinion of everybody that we do. (laughs) Hey, that's wrong. If your opinion is not loving someone, then you don't share God's opinion. And, And by the way, he doesn't share your opinion. It's interesting. We would never walk up to a guy, probably not, we shouldn't. We would never walk up to a guy and just start trashing his wife saying terrible things about what we don't like about it. There'd be a decency of respect that we probably wouldn't go to a guy and just start mouthing off about his wife. And yet, it's so easy to just criticize and judge the bride of Christ for whom he died and loves. And Paul has this wonderful example that when the gospel touches a soul, And then when we see the love of Christ and we humble ourselves and say, I'm not better than anyone. It didn't require less of Jesus' blood to save me. And I'm not standing before him accepted on my performance now, just like you're not. My performance may be better than yours. My performance may be worse than yours. But we're all partakers of grace that says his performance saves us. So there's no room for haughtiness, high-mindedness, self-righteousness. There's no room for it. There's no room for it. What there's room for is love. I need to look around the room at every Christian. I need to look around the community group at every Christian. I need to look at people who've sinned against me that are Christians. I need to look at every one of them and say, Jesus loves them just as much as he loves me. doesn't mean that we never deal with sin or we never do something if someone sins. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying the heart attitude, the heart attitude is to be the heart of Christ. So he says, I'm, I'm thankful for this deep partnership, this deep fellowship. What joins us together? We're on the same team, but why are we on the same team? Because we're all recipients of grace. And he's building our bond through suffering. He's building our bond through service. And I love you guys, is what he says. Every time I think about you, joy's coming up in my heart. When you think of those around you, do you see them as those who have received the same grace that you have? Or do you see yourself as, them lower, you better? Or vice versa. We can judge ourselves harshly and feel like we don't fit in because we're below everyone else. This works both ways. This is a good word for dads. Paul's fathering the church here. He's saying to his spiritual children, as it were, guys, I, I, I am made of the same stuff that you are, and when I see you, I realize we have the same Savior. That's a good word for dads. It's a good word for me as a dad to realize with my Christian kids that I am, I'm not better than them. I don't judge them self-righteously. Now, I'm, I'm called to discipline and lead them and bring correction where appropriate, but the fundamental approach to my life with them is that we have the, I need a Savior as much as you do. I need a Savior as much as you do. And I'm so thankful that God's acted upon both of us. 
and I love you with the affection of Christ. Even as a human father, we have human love for our children, but we want to ask the Lord to give us the affection of Christ. We want to view our children through God's eyes, and that's what Paul does here. I love you with the affection of Christ. So Philippians, when I think of you, man, I just pray with joy. Why? Every time I remember you, I thank God. Number two, because of your partnership. Number three, he's thankful for God's ongoing work in them. Look at verse six. I know I'm going back. I just did seven and eight. I'm going back to six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's thankful of God's work in the past. Everything we enjoyed together when I was in Philippi, even getting run out of the city, everything we involved together, I have fond memories of you, good memories of you, but you know what? I'm looking to the future, and I, I, I'm, I'm thanking God because he's never giving up on you. He thanks God because of God's ongoing work. This is so encouraging. He was saying, I don't know about you guys, Man, you started off good, but man, what is a father to do? That's not what he's saying. He's not wringing his hand. He's saying, God is going to be faithful. I'm thanking God that he finishes what he starts. We all have a long way to go, but we all have a, a Savior who takes us to the end and finishes what he begins. Here's something very fascinating about this. I never knew this until this week. Um, one of my favorite commentators is Sinclair Ferguson. And uh, Sinclair Ferguson, I'm going to have a book for you by him next week on Philippians. But he, he said about this, this phrase, bring it to completion. He, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. He said the word bring it to completion means uh, to, uh, it, it has to do with putting the finishing touches on or the finishing touches to. Now, that struck me. Now, realize Paul, three sentences before, called everybody a saint. He's relating to them based on their position in Christ. And then he says this, that God's going to put the finishing touches. We often look at how far we have to go, and we think what's in front of us is the, is the hugest chasm. And so we think we're just like anybody else. We're just like every other sinner. We're just forgiven. That's all. But the truth is, the greatest work has already been done in us. The greatest work is to go from death to life. That's the greatest. You won't go to life when you die and see Jesus. Oh, it'll be categorically different experientially because there'll be no fall, there'll be no sin. But that's not the moment you go to life. You already have spiritual life. You don't receive the Holy Spirit when you get to heaven. You don't receive forgiveness of sins when you get to heaven. God's already done this great work of moving us from darkness to light. Now he's conforming us and conforming our image and changing us to make us more like Jesus. And when we die, yes, we will still have a long way to go. We will die as people who still sin. Absolutely. But he's trying to make the point, God who's begun a good work in you, which is no minor deal. It's no minor alteration. He took you from death to life. That's huge. He forgave all your sins. He removed his wrath and condemnation. God has done something glorious for you, and now he's finishing his work in these very short years until you see him and you'll be changed into his likeness. I'm not saying that's not a radical change. Yes, it's a radical change. 
But we need to realize that God has acted on people to bring us from death to life, and that's glorious, and God will finish what he's doing. God is working in us. He isn't through with us, and he's called us to help one another along in that process. We need to speak to one another like this. This is what Paul says. God, he, he wants them to be confident in God. We all lose our confidence in God. I'm a mess. I don't know if I'll make it. I'll never change. I'm so discouraged. And we need to hear that God will complete his work in us personally. And we need to know that for other people. That's what Paul's saying. He's going to complete his work in you. So I need to look at you. Just like you look at me, all my mess, my sin, my weaknesses, my inabilities, my selfishness, my pride. Yes, it's all on display if you know me well. And I look at you and yours is all on display. But I need to look at you and say, yeah, there's problems and let's talk about that. Can you help me grow? Can I help you grow? Can we be in a group where we help one another grow? But can I also, as part of that, every time I'm helping you in any way, make it very clear to you that God's going to finish his work in you. That you walk out of any conversation with me where we're talking about our failings and our sins. You walk out with a confidence that God's not through with me yet and that God's going to help me and that God's faithful. That's what he wants them to know. God is going to change you. God is not going to give up on you. So when you encounter someone who's in your church in our church, if you're part of this church, when you encounter people in the church, are you more aware of their weaknesses and failures? Or are you more aware of God's faithfulness to finish what he starts? Dads, as you interact with your kids, your Christian kids, this is a statement to Christians, but as you interact with your Christian kids, are you, if you interact with your kids who aren't Christians, I still think there's a great hope that God will save them. We can have that hope and should have that hope. It's for you and your children. We should trust God that he's going to save our children. But as you interact with your Christian kids, are you more aware of how far they have to go? Are you more confident in God's faithfulness to see them there? So when you bring correction, when you bring adjustment, when you bring their life, when you bring exposure of the scripture so that the light of the scripture shines on their heart, do you leave them with, uh, when they receive conviction, do you leave them with hope that God will change them? That's what Paul does. Paul's fathering the church. He's going to get to some things they need to grow in, but he's going to start with God is faithful. That's good fathering. He's rooting their confidence in God's faithfulness to them. So why does Paul thank God for the church? I think about Philippi, I thank God. Why? Every time he remembers them, he, he, he turns to prayer with joy. He thanks God for their partnership. And he thanks God that he's going to continue to do and bring it to pass, fulfill his work in them. That's how he views Christians. That's how he views the church. Does the church have problems? Oh, yeah. Does it have humans? Yes. Is it perfect? Not even close. But he's grateful. He's thankful. He looks at the people of God, and he has the affection of Jesus for them. And he tells them with warmth and strong language. It's challenging to me. I, I want to grow in that. I, I don't always have this kind of warmth. And this isn't just a personality trait, by the way. It's not just, well, Paul's really, uh, you know, he's just really one of those emotional types. If you read Paul, he's an intellectual. He may be the most brilliant guy. I've never read anybody more brilliant than him. He's an intellectual. Most intellectuals that I've encountered, brilliant guys, 
their natural personality isn't necessarily, they're just all emotion and not very thoughtful, but just gushy. I don't read Paul and say he's gushy. He's intellectual, but he's warm and affectionate in his speech and encouraging to the people of God. I want to grow in that. I want to I grow in warmth in my own life. Maybe you as well would identify with that. So he thanks God. Secondly, he prays for the work, and I'll be very brief here, but he prays for God to work in the church. Look at what he prays, verse 9. And it's my prayer. I thank my God. I always pray for you. Now, here's my prayer, verse 9. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He prays for abounding love. When I think about you, church, I pray that your love would increase. Love for God or love for others? He doesn't say. I'm not sure we should make any distinction because you can't love God without loving other people. The Bible says that. You can't say, I love God and, and hate your brother. You don't love God. So it's love for God and it's love for other people is what he says. Uh, he, he's saying, I'm praying that your love will grow. It will increase. Your, now think of the context. You're fe- we're fellow partakers of grace. God's begun a good work in us. He's going to continue that until we die And now he's praying for this abounding love in the church. This is a gospel prayer. This is a gospel prayer. Look at verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Here's what he's really praying. He's really praying, I pray that the gospel would have its effect in you. So that you see what Christ has done for you and you have the affection of Christ for others. That's your love will abound more and more. If I have the affection of Christ, if I see what God has done for me, I'm a fellow partaker with everyone else of grace. I see what he's done for me. I'm affected by the love of Christ. I extend the love to others, and my love for God and for others grows more and more. He's saying, let the gospel bear fruit in the church. He actually uses the word fruit. Verse 11, fruit of the righteousness that comes through Christ. May the work of Jesus change his people so that they love each other more and more. That's the work of the gospel. It seems that they're vulnerable to a budding division. I mentioned that earlier. We'll get into all that in chapter 2. It seems that he's having to talk to them about don't put your interest above others. Why? Well, because someone's putting their interest above others. I guess why he's saying it. So, so there is this issue going on in the church. We know there's a conflict in chapter 4. And so what he's saying is we need the gospel to bear fruit in this church because they're vulnerable. Every church is vulnerable. This side of heaven, every church is vulnerable for what's going, going on here, division. Can these two people get along? He's saying it, we're all vulnerable to that, and that's why we need the gospel to bear fruit in our lives, the righteousness of Christ to bear fruit so that we love each other more and more. It's really a gospel-oriented prayer that's saying, God, please make the work of the gospel have its effect in this church so they love one another. Here's a word that's tossed around a lot, gospel-centered. It's an adjective that you can, that, that's just tossed on everything. It's a gospel-centered church. It's a gospel-centered small group. He's a gospel-centered man. That's a gospel-centered book. And it, I really like the term. I really liked it a lot when I first started hearing it um, until it's just applied to everything, and it starts to lose some of its meaning. Uh, here's what gospel-centered means in a real way. It means that we focus on the work of Christ and that he produces fruit through us. The gospel-centered church will love each other more and more. 
So we can, we can slap on gospel-centered to whatever we want, but if people don't love each other, the church really isn't centered on the gospel. Or at least the gospel not, is not having its effect in a meaningful way. When the gospel has its effect in our lives, we love each other more and more. And we can be confident that God wants to help us with that. Why? Because he's not going to leave us. He's going to finish what he started. That's a gospel hope. That's a gospel hope. So he prays that they will love each other more and more. Next, he prays for their, and lastly, he prays for their knowledge and discernment. Look what he says. Um, I pray that you would, uh, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with all, I mean, with knowledge and all discernment. He's, he's praying that they would have a love that's based on the knowledge of God, a love that's based on his word, and a love that's based on discernment so that they may approve what is excellent. He's praying that they will have a heart of love and a mind of knowledge and wisdom and discernment so they'll know how to love people. So we pray that you will have love in your heart based on knowledge of God's word and you'll have wisdom and discernment so that you'll approve what is excellent and you'll know how to express love to people because love is not one size fits all. We need wisdom and we need discernment to know what love looks like in any situation. Love can look different if I'm loving a weak person, if I'm loving a mature person, if I'm loving a new believer, if I'm loving a Christian who is in rebellion and, and they're under discipline, that love's going to look different in that context. Loving a person who has real limitations and is ignorant and weak. Loving, loving someone. So, so love acts in different ways. Love, love acts in a way to honor God and point the person to Christ but we don't say the same thing to everybody in every situation. So we need a love for people, but we need a knowledge of God, a knowledge of his word, a knowledge of the gospel, and a discernment so we could approve what is excellent so we know how to express love to other people. And all of that, verse 11, filled with fruit of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. All of that so that Christ will be praised. So that's his heart. I'm praying for you that you love each other, and you know how to love, you know God, and you know how to love each other, because that'll bring glory to Jesus. And that's my goal. So Paul, what, what, what do you think about the church? Paul, how do you like your church? Paul, how do you feel about the church at Philippi? I think he would say, well, he is thankful for them, because God has acted upon them. And he loves them, he's praying for God's love to produce more and more love in them. He's thankful and he's praying. He's thankful for his memory. He's thankful for their partnership. He's thankful that God will stick with them until the end as he puts the finishing touches on his church waiting to come back and rescue his bride and take this to the new heavens and the new earth. So he's thankful. He's joyful. His heart fills with an emotion for God's people because God has acted upon them just as he's acted upon him and he's cementing their bonds through suffering and service. And he's praying for them, praying that they love God more, that they love others more, that the gospel bears fruit in them and through them. He's praying that they'll have wisdom and discernment so that they know how to express love. It's not just an emotion, but they need to have wisdom and discernment to know what is the heart of Christ like to be expressed to this person in this situation. What is love really look like. And I'm certain of this, that all of this is going to happen for the glory of God, he says, for the glory of God. I think that's how the Lord wants us to 
feel about our church. Doesn't mean that there's not, that we don't identify weaknesses. He's going to do that. Doesn't mean that we don't raise concerns. Doesn't mean that we don't appropriately express grievances. Doesn't mean that we don't acknowledge our weaknesses and needs as a church. Of course. But it means that fundamentally, when I look around at others, I see them as co-recipients of grace in the family of God with me. And I see them as those Jesus gave his life for and bled for. And I ask God to give me his affection for them. And I pray, give me more and more love, Lord, for you and your people. Show me how to act with discernment towards others so that we can bring you massive, maximum glory. That's how we're to feel about our church and about all Christians, I believe, from this passage. Let's pray. God, it's most appropriate for me to thank you, for all of us, to thank you for the people we're joined to. Lord, we want to ask forgiveness when we have looked at others with self-righteousness, when we have looked at others with envy, when we have looked at others with haughtiness, when we have judged them in our hearts, when we have judged them to others. Lord, we ask your forgiveness, and we just ask you that you would help us look to others and see ourselves as those who have all partaken of grace, those who are all undeserving, those who all have been loved by you. God, give us that vision for one another. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.